Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. My name is Professor Ian Hickey. I'm the co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre here at the University of Sydney. And it's my great pleasure to introduce this event this evening. Uh, I'd like to recognise the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional owners on the land on which we meet. And uh, in discussion with a number of our Indigenous uh, friends this week, I've been involved in a lot of interesting discussions about the roles of technology and the roles of change and how we communicate on various ways, how we learn, how we teach and how we stay in social connection. During Mental Health Month, it's a great pleasure to have the opportunity to have a Sydney Ideas Forum devoted to the issues of mental health and technology and particularly that which regards to your smartphone and how technology can impact on your mental health. Now normally and quite often we have these discussions amongst ourselves but we're quite lucky this week as a consequence of the generosity of some international guests to have this discussion in the context of wider mental health and particularly international mental health with a focus on young people. So we're really lucky this evening to have two of my close friends and colleagues from North America come and spend time with us. One who will moderate the rest of the discussion when I finally get off here is Professor Kathleen Merikangas who is the Director of Genetic Epidemiology at the Intramural Program of the National Institutes of Mental Health. And Kathleen has led really epidemiology in adolescence over the last 30 years, working out which adolescents develop which disorders at which ages, with a strong interest in what are the driving factors to changing patterns of mental health problems amongst young people. And when she takes over, it'll become obvious her interest in technology, both as a tracking device as a potential intervention and as a new environmental influence within the world in which these lives will become apparent. So I'm very grateful for Kathleen for not only participating in our symposium at the Brain and Mind Centre on Friday, but for staying around to continue to contribute here and not taking off to Melbourne where she's supposed to be. Next to her is Dr Peter Zipmari, who is the Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, otherwise known as CAMH in Toronto. Uh, also the Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto and very much the University of Toronto's Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Peter heads the Kundal Centre for Youth Depression uh, at CAMH and that is a particularly Canadian funded, philanthropically funded initiation trying to focus on ways of addressing problems of youth depression and within that context the use of technology for tracking, understanding, potentially intervening in common mental health problems is an important set of issues. Locally, Sally Gainsbury comes from the Gambling Treatment Research Unit here at the Brain and Mind Centre with Alex Blazinski and has been very involved in the discussion locally of what is happening in the gaming industry and gambling industries and the exposures that we now have amongst young people to various sorts of technologies and what may be the pros and cons of those developing industries and their applications by young people. In my own particular role, I'm tied up in what is a very important initiative between the University of Sydney and PricewaterhouseCoopers to develop a new company that's called Synergy, which is delivering a $30 million 
federal government program on the uses of technologies to transform mental health services. So I have a particular role myself nationally and part of my role as a National Mental Health Commissioner additionally in where do technologies fit in to particularly the transformation of services in particular environments but also what are the wider sets of social issues that we face particularly for younger people. So I'm going to get off actually in the introduction bit to just take up a chair at the end here and hand over to Kathleen to moderate the rest of the discussion. We'll have a discussion amongst the people we have here and then we'll open up the uh, rest of the uh, evening to question and answers with the audience. I do want to say finally, this is part of an ongoing series here at the University of Sydney through Sydney Ideas, and I'm really grateful to the University of Sydney for the emphasis it does put on mental health and the opportunity it's taking. So there is another Sydney Ideas Forum on Thursday the 26th of October, which is devoted to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health, which will be held in the McLaren Hall at the University of Sydney. So that's Thursday the 26th of October between 6 and 7.30pm. But at this point, over to Kathleen. Does this work? Yes. Yep. Good evening, everybody. So I just noticed it's 3.09 in the morning for me. So <laughs> with, I'm using my Fitbit device. How many of you are wearing some kind of uh, device that measures activity? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, it depends on what setting you're in. But at some settings, you'll find about 70 to 80% of people in the US are wearing these kinds of devices. And how many of you have mobile phones? Yeah, so mobile phones now are beginning to do a lot of the same things that we can get from the Fitbits with the health apps, where they have accelerometers and so forth. So it's mobile technology has become universal, and now even people um, who would never have touched a computer when they were younger are learning that they have to have mobile phones even for safety. So like anything else, when you talk about smartphones and mobile technology, it encompasses a full range of different tools that we have um, available. And well, like anything else, there are really beneficial effects of these devices and then very negative effects. So what we wanted to cover, uh, the panelists could talk about all of those, kind of the broad scope and then open it to you to ask some questions that we may or may not be able to answer at least to um, raise questions about what we need to know about them. So I'm actually here in Sydney and then moving on to Melbourne to talk about an international consortium that we've developed using smartphones um, and actigraphy devices where we're interested in tracking motor activity as a core feature of mental disorders, particularly mood disorders. Um, mobile, motor activity is a core feature of bipolar disorder, manic depression. It's a core feature of depression. Motor changes. In people who are depressed, they can either be more agitated and have increased activity, or they can just stay in bed, knock it up, and have no activity. So these devices, we look at minute-to-minute -minute movement. And as you know, we can also look at physical activity, energy expenditure, which has become a major issue both in your country and our country, where obesity has been really on the increase. For the first time in the US, we've had a decrease in obesity in young people in the last year because of the attention to increased physical activity and diet and so forth. 
So these kinds of tools are really helping us to implement health interventions, where people can at least be aware of how much are they walking, how much are they moving, and then we can use smartphones to track our health. Um, some people here are even tracking their heart rate because they have health conditions, so these devices now, they're becoming more and more sophisticated. Um, we just wrote a grant now to the federal government of the United States, some biostatisticians who I work with, to develop new statistical models because these data are multi-layer, multi-level, and also repeated measures over time, so they're quite sophisticated, requiring sophisticated tools to actually analyze the data to address some of the questions about both our health and mental health. Uh, so one of the things that we've learned is the multimodal piling on of different domains onto these devices is really happening very rapidly so that now some of these devices measure your sweat and they can actually look at changes in different chemicals. People who are at risk for epilepsy, for example, or people's blood sugar and so forth. So there's a number of tools in the health sector to track people. And so the, it's going to require, I think, a lot of thinking about do we really want to track these things? How can they be used? If they're downloaded on the web, what about people's um, privacy of information? Um, so these are all issues. I think the ethical aspects of tracking people on GPS is another issue that we can discuss later on. Our colleagues at the National Institute of Drug Abuse are using GPS technology to track people who are addicted to cocaine and heroin, and they track people as to where they are. They will report craving. They'll report use of drugs. And then they, the people who are treating them can actually intervene. So it's even being used for illicit activities, such as the use of heroin and cocaine in our country. And then, that, then the question becomes, well, can these be used by the justice system uh, as something that's going to, to be used to prosecute people for buying or selling drugs and so forth? So it's opened up a whole new set of questions for ethics. And then before I turn on to some of the panel, I mean, if you're aware of what's happening in the United States, I've been away from it for about five days and I haven't turned on my, um, haven't been reading the news media. But um, as you know, there's, um, there has now been increasing evidence that our last election was actually influenced by people who bought Facebook pages as fake individuals who were uh, either pro or con certain candidates. So this was a nationwide effort that now is being investigated. We're not sure what the evidence is going to show. So it can actually be at a, 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 an entire effect, an entire country, an entire election. So at both the personal level of how these devices can be used for health, that can really help us to prevent suicide, to prevent health problems. It can also be used in a way that can be very harmful um, to people and to their rights as individuals. So I think with that introduction, I'd like to turn to the experts here, and they're all going to say they're not experts on mobile technologies. You do own a cell phone, finally. He is from Canada. Peter's from Canada. 
So do you still have a, is it a blackberry? It looks like a blackberry it's to me. It's a blackberry. So there you go. What else would Blackberries it be? are produced in Canada. So he has a blackberry. But for a long time, I don't think you had one of these devices, did you, Peter? That's right. He relied on his family, like many of us do, to contact him. Anyway, I'd like to turn to Peter first, who has worked with children. He's a child psychiatrist who's done a lot of work with children with autism and Asperger's uh, syndrome. So he knows a lot about um, these children and their mental health and impairment in their daily activities, and also has been very involved in, in work at his department on bullying, which is another issue that you're all aware of that can take place through these kinds of devices. So I thought you could make some comments about both some of the positive and negative influences of uh, mobile technology in children. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kathleen, and thank you, Ian, for uh, asking me to, to uh, sit on this panel. Um, it's my first visit to Australia, and uh, Sydney in particular, and what a lovely city this is. Wow, I'm really blown away. Part of it has to do with the weather. Like, this is great weather compared to what I've come from. So that's what was as a way of, a, as an introduction. So as Kathleen said, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. I actually mostly see adolescents. And uh, I see kids with a, a whole sort of gamut and spectrum of social problems one way or another. Some of them have an autism spectrum disorder, others don't. Uh, they might have social phobia or just difficulties with peer interaction um, in general. And certainly smartphones and internet use and so forth um, is a real issue in terms of kids spending more and more time um, you know, on the internet with video games of, of uh, one sort or another. Sometimes it can be a real problem as some kids, uh, particularly those who are on the autism spectrum, become so fascinated and so tuned in to a video game or some other um, sort of uh, technology that they lose the ability to tell the difference between reality and fantasy. They're not psychotic, they're not hallucinating or anything like that, but they have very vivid fantasy lives. And the content from the internet can seep, which becomes part of their fantasy, can sort of seep into their, um, into their consciousness and their daily activities. So that certainly can become very uh, worrying, for sure. I'm going to focus on some of the negative things, because I'm a, of a melancholic disposition. Uh, and so I tend to see the, ne the negative side of things. On the other hand, for kids with social impairments of a really severe nature, actually chat rooms become the one social um, outlet that they have. And they can develop friendships. And for a while, I thought, well, these are not really sort of warm friendships in the traditional sense. And then I thought, well, that's a pretty one-sided perspective on the quality of friendship. You know, maybe that actually works very well, being in a chat room and having a, a certain uh, set of people. Uh, and the quality of that friendship may be as important to those as different types of face-to-face -face friendships that other people might have. And I think we should 
have a, a, a broader concept of what friendships and social interactions might mean. I do want to talk about the cyberbullying thing because I, I don't know in this country if, if that's an issue. It's been a real issue um, in Canada. We had two very highly publicized um, uh, adolescents who uh, died by suicide uh, as a result of uh, systematic cyberbullying. Um, it was a tragic, awful um, cases. It generated a lot of publicity and laws have been passed um, in response. And I think what research that's being done on cyberbullying um, is finding, A, that it's very common um, and in some ways more common than, let's call it, relational bullying, um, which might most often takes place in the schoolyard. The long-term consequences of cyberbullying appear to be more harmful than bullying that takes place in the school or in high school. There's the privacy part of cyberbullying. You don't often know who's doing it. There's the disclosure to a much broader audience than in the schoolyard. And the capacity to deal with cyberbullying is much uh, less effective than uh, you know bullying that takes place in a school setting where you can get the principal and the teachers around. Interventions around cyberbullying too. Uh, I mean, it's so all this is happening so fast. We don't really have time to develop interventions and to test them out in proper clinical trials. So I really worry about cyberbullying as becoming more and more important. And my other Another uh, important part of my life is dealing with kids with mood disorders, adolescents and young adults with depression, and probably the most common risk factor uh, that I think we've seen recently is uh, cyberbullying or bullying for depression and uh, for mood disorders. So maybe I'll stop there uh, and uh, let my colleagues uh, add some things. So, um, as Professor Hickey mentioned, my background is actually in gambling, so I'm the Deputy Director of the Brain and Mind Centre's Gambling Treatment and Research Clinic. And I've been particularly looking at the area of online gambling in the recent years. It's massively increased in Australia and worldwide. And looking, trying to understand, is online gambling addiction different from the type of addictive behaviour we've seen amongst people who have land-based gambling problems? And that led to the question about well, what is it about the internet that makes it a different medium? And, and are people actually addicted to the internet? Are they addicted to uh, gambling via the internet? Are they addicted to social media via the internet or, or online gaming? So we started to look more broadly at this idea of behavioural addiction, so non-substance addictions, how it can actually alter people's brains and their behaviour in such a damaging way that people find it difficult to control themselves. Um, but before I get into the, the really serious uh, addictive part of things, it's also important to look at what are generally people doing that might not necessarily be a clinical disorder, but what types of uh, negative impacts is the internet having at a more general level. So we started to look at these concepts uh, of online regret and online privacy concerns, which we can, we, we can get into. But the first thing to mention just at this general level is, is what are the regrets people are having online? 
online. So, you know, as, as we've discussed already, people are engaged in really positive aspects of the internet and smartphone use can be really positive. Social media use can actually increase close relationships and the studies do support that, that it actually can be really helpful for people in their lives, keeping in touch, particularly um, sharing over long distances, staying in touch with, with circles of people. But at what point are there detrimental effects of social media? So we know in Australia that the average internet user spends 10 hours and 24 minutes online every day through various internet connected devices. So keeping in mind that about 84% of Australians use the internet uh, every day and around 90% have at least one social media account amongst internet users, we're talking about a huge proportion of the time that people are connected to the internet um, and are actively checking in. Now you might not spend that entire time on social media or actively using it, but if you have that constant ping in your pocket, uh, people find that very uh, difficult to ignore. So we can perhaps get into that as well. There's lots of different avenues to go down. But So we did a survey of about 2,500 Australians and we asked them what they had regretted online to try and really understand what is it that people are doing online. Is it gambling? Is it addictions? Is it social media use? And we specifically focused this one of just general social media use. And we found that two-thirds of our sample had admitted to at least one post they'd put on social media that they'd regretted. That's a, a pretty high proportion of people who are using social media and still using social media, so it hadn't turned them off it. Uh, but we wanted to look at what are people doing online that they regret. And we found that for people posting text and photos, they were actually different. So people who posted text, so maybe Facebook updates or Twitter texts, were uh, <clears throat> often posting negative comments about other people or saying something that was hurtful or something that embarrassed themselves. And these were often posted in the heat of a moment, so they were upset or angry or lashing out. In contrast, people posting photos often did this in a, a positive state of mind. They were feeling happy or they were actually trying to help people or they were trying to be funny or interesting or sort of display something about themselves. And in some cases, they, they, they actually had thought it through and they thought it was a good idea. Um, but they had obviously misjudged their audience because the, the consequences were that they were uh, being misrepresented or they hadn't, uh, people were misunderstanding what they were saying, they offended people, they'd embarrassed themselves. Often the content was profanity or sexual, in, uh, sexual content or substance abuse, which is particularly amongst a, you know, a younger generation, keeping in mind now that employers are looking at, at social media accounts and universities are looking at social media accounts. So... Um, you know, these things are never, never private. Once it's online, it can always be shared. So it's really important just for, for all users to start thinking about, you know, what are they doing online that can have negative repercussions? And, you know, what are we as a society doing to teach people how to use uh, social media, how to see other people's social media posts and how to interpret that, how to think through these things ourselves. So everything from you know, serious addiction to social media to just everyday use and posting in the heat of the moment can have so many different consequences that go well beyond the immediate moment. Compared to regret in uh, a face-to-face -face conversation, online regretted instances have well uh, been documented to have a much longer lasting impact because 
because the impact isn't just in that moment and whoever heard it heard it and they can then talk about it, but it's online that can be shared then and, and go forward and um, perpetuity so that someone can look at it in years to come who might be considering to employ you and be making decisions on that. So I think this topic of getting people to understand how to use smartphones, how to use social media, how to use the internet in an appropriate way for themselves is incredibly important. Okay, thanks very much. We're going to return to some of these issues um, in a few moments. We'll have the, I'll ask the panel some questions. Okay, Dr. Hickey. Yeah, so one of the most interesting things is, this is one of these great things in mental health. We're involved in the most massive social experiment. There's a big social factor going on, which is the introduction of technologies. This, this type of mobile constantly with you, connected to the world. And I think we all recognise this is a big environmental influence. So we're dealing with something in real time and we're all expressing opinions about it and most of our media and every day, everyone has a strong opinion about it. Most people in their own families and homes and schools and workplaces expresses strong views. When the media every day, we often see very strong negative views. I think one of the issues is who's actually got data about what's actually going on? Sally just alluded to one sort of survey. I've been lucky myself to be associated with surveys around youth mental health and technology over the last 15 years in Australia. So this goes back right to the start of just actually prior to Facebook actually being invented and the early forms of internet-based technology. In the middle of that, about 2829, we've been doing regular surveys every three years, you really had the arrival of social media and able to look at what particularly young people were doing with that kind of media. Despite all the negative commentary about the use of media, from about 2809 onwards, what you saw was a massive increase in social connection associated with the use of that kind of media. Young people were creating more of the actual messaging content themselves, rather than just receiving it from others, then sharing it, and in a connecting kind of way. So one of the commonest criticisms that's often said, of, I think, of what is, what is going on, is that it disconnects everybody. Most of the evidence, actually, is that it connects everybody. Now, whether that connection is always positive, I think is open to some considerable kind of discussion. And Peter's alluded to this, what we found fascinating is many of those people who were disconnected in what we call the real world, or people my age refer to as real social networks, suddenly become part of social networks. So those who are left out through social anxiety, through autism, through communication difficulties, or just not being fitting in with the people they have the closest immediate contact with in their schoolyard or in their workplace, find a whole other world of people who do share a view of the world of themselves. So we've, you know, very much, in a lot of the work I'm associated with, been surprised about the positive aspect of that. The inclusion of any of those who were excluded in many of the ways that we transacted the world in the past and the opportunities that might arise. The second issue, this one around bullying, I'm always somewhat amused having been to a single-sex boys' school myself, the notion that bullying suddenly got invented by the internet, I always find rather amusing. You know, bullying has been a problem, and I think, and a great credit in child and adolescent psychiatry, the negative impacts of bullying is something that has tremendously increased over the last 20 years. Now, whether Peter's alluded to, I think, one of the additional really challenging issues at the moment, whether the legacy of cyberbullying and some of the disclosures and things that are going on now, when that happens in a much wider social network and, and the way it's being transacted, whether the nature of the bullying now has additional adverse and long-term consequences. I think we're in the, in the middle of that kind of other issue. I have been associated also with longitudinal twin studies in Queensland, which have been looking at, is there a relationship between internet use and other forms of addiction? Because I think this is another kind of idea that's come out 
you know, is this increasing addictive behaviours? In that set of studies, we find no association between internet use and other uses of substances and other sort of gambling behaviour, etc. Now, that's at one point in time on a set of associations. I think there's an open kind of issue. The last comment I made, I'm very much associated with using technologies for therapeutic uses, for good uses. So the e, so-called e-clinic type issues, we've been looking at what young people do in their internet use. So there's an amazing number of hours that you quote. If you go and look particularly what young men are doing after 11 o'clock at night, <laughs> you may have your own ideas about what they're doing. But one of the most common things is those actually with mental health problems are seeking connection with others at that time. They're actually seeking help a lot of the time. So you see this actually an association between use of the internet late at the night into the early morning is more, particularly by young men with mental health problems, but they're actually seeking help. And they're actually seeking other people to talk to about those particular things. And needless to say, we professionals are not there at 11 o'clock at night or 2 in the morning to actually help. We're there between 9 and 5 sometimes if you happen to have the right referral pathways and you happen to know how to find us. So we see there's a tremendous opportunity that actually those who are actually struggling are seeking connection through the new technologies, but we need to work out how best to respond. So we, you know, it's a big experiment. We don't know all the consequences. I think there's a tremendous lack of data actually about what's going on, but we also see potentially the opportunities to actually connect with a lot of people in trouble, to promote social connection, and to bring into social networks new types of social networks those who may well have been excluded in what we previously considered the more traditional human-based world. Okay, thank you, Ian. So there's been a number of issues raised, both positive and negative. We've talked about some of the ethical issues. We've talked a lot about the, the social network and the social connections. Um, we haven't mentioned much about employment um, circumstances. So I work for the federal government of the United States and so I'm given a device that is owned by the federal government. My computer has a, um, you know, it has a label that it belongs to the federal government as, as my phone. So before I use either of those devices, I have to take a course in the proper use of the phone and the proper use of my computer. And they've now relaxed the rules. We're now allowed to spend some of our work time answering emails, connected with families, and these kinds of things. But there's also very strict rules about what you may and may not do. And sometimes it's been very helpful, even though we complain about having to take all these online courses. There's a number of issues that they raise that are some of the dangers of the use of your devices. So they actually warn you about sending out an email, they, in large letters it says, emails are permanent. They can be read by anybody, they can be picked up by anybody. So one of the things I was thinking about, of course that's because these devices are owned by my employer, but I'm not sure how much we train people on the use of phones that we really understand when you accept when you sign up with, you know, for your iPhone or, and you say agree, because you have to agree when it upgrades, which I, happened to me this morning, um, we don't really know what we're agreeing to all the time. Who's our information being given to? And particularly if you're in a university setting and you have university computers, it is an opportunity 
to provide some warning signs about the use of this technology. And I'm not sure to what extent people are really taking advantage of that if you're supplying the device to people or you're part of a community. So that might be something we might think about to warn people about some of the dangers. I'm not sure if we could warn them about the addiction of the games because the game developers were never gonna want you to do that because they depend on this, as you know. But I think that we probably should train people a little bit more about one, some of the benefits and risks of these devices. So that was something I wanted to ask all of you about um, in, in ways that we could do this even in the school system or in the mental health system or working with people who have addictions. Well, I, th I think it's a great point. I'll just raise the issue about schools. There are now a number of um, clinical trials of uh, social media literacy use uh, that have been delivered um, in schools, so to teach kids how to use social media, how to avoid cyberbullying, uh, what to do when it occurs, and um, all, and the the, the meta-analysis results are yes, it makes a small difference. So actually, these interventions can work. Probably, it's encouraging. Um, that they make a small difference, but obviously we've got more to do in order to increase the the benefit that's associated with them. But you know, like we like school, and I don't know how receptive schools in Australia, high school, is that what you call them? Yep. Same thing. Okay, good. It's the same part of the world. Although you're you're you're, you're all you're so more English than <laughs> we Canadians are. It's really so interesting. Both sort of you know colonies and what's happened to us to compare and contrast. How did I get onto that? High school. Yes, how receptive high schools are in Australia to mental health literacy and uh, mental health programming within high schools. In Canada, it's very difficult to develop mental health programs within high schools, but cyberbullying or social use uh, literacy is certainly an important thing that's worth, worth doing. I think on that, Australian schools are very open. With mental health literacy is a big issue in Australian schools, and, and both through publicly funded programs and then privately, it's an issue. I think the truth is, schools have had to react in real time about what are the right sets of rules. And typically, this starts as a regulatory thing can we stop it? <laughs> you know, don't bring your devices, don't do this, whatever else, it doesn't work. Right? And I think we've moved into a phase now, which is consistent with what you were headed there, Kathleen. What, what are the, not just training, but what are the social agreements? I mean, Behaviour online is different to behaviour in other areas. It's moderated in different ways. People express things in different ways. There isn't the same immediacy of feedback often of the extent to which someone has been distressed by what you've done in various ways. You know, people press the send button often without actually kind of thinking about quite where that goes and how it happens. So I think there's a bigger set of social experience, mostly going on in our own homes, in our own families. What are the agreed rules? Within schools, the simple... I think our initial approach, regulated, and our federal government here at one stage was having serious thoughts about how to regulate things, has now given over to forget it. You aren't going to be able to regulate it. It's going to have to operate in a training, in a social agreement. What do we really know, you know about the social behaviours and how might they be optimised in, in ways and how might we reflect on what is really happening in these kind of environments? And I think that, in many ways, remains an open question. I think one, a very open... Uh, research and development, can we understand better 
what are the optimal ways at different ages of and I think an age of development's one here, you know, with younger children in different settings, with particularly the teenage kind of years for those of us in workplace and higher education settings, what are the best ways to make use of the opportunities that technology may provide us? And I think that, you know, the, the idea of teaching people how to engage with the internet and how to act online and use social media is incredibly important. But we also know that in the moment, people tend to act in irrational ways. You know, I'm a gambling researcher, so I'm very well aware that we can actually teach people statistics and we can have people tell us what the chances are of winning a jackpot. And they know that, um, you know, every game is random. They put them in front of a poker machine and that all completely goes out of their head because it's fun. It's addictive. Uh, designed to get distract people from thinking rationally and it's not fun to do it when you're thinking rationally so when we go online we're essentially opened ourselves up to this huge world of possibilities and I'm sure that uh, at least some of you might have experienced losing track of time online or, or ending up on a web page and having absolutely no idea at all how you got there um, and it's through click these clicking links but it's not just young people as well we know that everyone's active online and certainly people People who went to high school when there weren't computers around are still active online and, and haven't had this opportunity. So we need to start thinking about these interventions that are in the moment. So nudging people at the right time. For example, when uh, you're about to put a, a post online just to have a, a little pop-up, do you really want to do that or do you want to think it through? The technology these days is so sophisticated, you can have sentiment checkers that actually go in and could detect profanity or, or various content and kind of flag that just like it might underline a typo or a spelling mistake for people. So these ideas that people need to actually start sense checking and the, the social media could potentially be doing this. They can do any of these interventions. Uh, and they are starting to do some. So recently when I was on uh, one of the social networks, it actually had, uh, before you tag in a photo, it had a little reminder that said, you know, who do you want to see this? Opt in, you know, your friends or are you aware that if you tag yourself in this photo, it's going to be shared more broadly? So the social networks can have the power to put these sorts of nudges in place uh, or we could develop third-party apps. But what we need to start doing is getting people to think in the moment to act appropriately, to sense check themselves and to have interventions to assist that because we do lose track of, of the training that we've had and we know what we're supposed to do but as you know, the research I mentioned about people being in this hot state of emotions, if you're feeling really angry or even if you're feeling really positive, really happy or excited, um, you know, the social connection is so important. We're heading off to Fiji on a holiday. We can't just resist checking in at Sydney Airport and telling all our friends and family that we're off to Fiji, a little humble brag, letting criminals all over the world know why my house is about to be unoccupied for a period of time. So to start thinking through of the consequences of what's actually happening beyond just the social, what are the terms and agreements? And we do ask in surveys who reads um, terms and conditions and we know that anyone that says yes is essentially lying because studies have uh, actually sat in coffee shops and set up free Wi-Fis and have people agree to the terms and conditions and this one particular study actually had about seven in ten people agree to give their uh, naming rights of their firstborn child over to the company that they had uh, set up. So, you know, we know that people don't read terms and conditions, which is why companies are happy to put in all the legalese without any details. But to actually start questioning, you know, if I'm downloading an, an app to um, measure my footsteps, does it need access to my camera? Does it need access to turn on my microphone? 
why would this app need to be able to turn on my microphone and what else is it going to be doing about it? So start to be, what we need to be teaching people is just to be a lot more savvy, a lot more critically minded to be thinking through the consequences, looking for indicators of authentication. Because with, with all the mental health apps that are online, there's actually a surprisingly huge number that are actually developed with no research behind them, with very little accreditation. For the average consumer, it's difficult to tell what are the useful apps and resources that are, uh, have credible research behind them and which ones are potentially manipulative because unfortunately the internet has just brought criminals together to find a, a group of victims uh, who are waiting to be victimised and there are, people, there are terms out there when you search for gambling help online that casino sites can come up. You know, people actually use those keywords for people knowing that people are desperate, looking for social connection, looking for help and using that against them. So it's a really difficult world out there and we need as many different interventions and training as we can get. So I'd like to comment about that because I, I think it's a really important issue. Uh, recently, a colleague reviewed the apps that are out there to treat depression, and there were hundreds of them. And there was no, there's no way to determine whether there's any evidence. It's, it goes along with um, Dr. Zapmarie's talk this morning about evidence-based treatment for childhood depression. It's just when you go to somebody, you don't know, is there an evidence base? Going to a physician, going to a clinician, and the same goes for internet interventions for weight. There's a huge number of them to lose weight. There's, and they actually are now beginning to be scientifically tested. Uh, so the National Institutes of Health have decided to take this on as an issue. Um, as you know, there's also websites where you can send your saliva and they will do genetic testing for you. And that has raised a whole host of issues um, and for a while, I think 23andMe was actually shut down in the United States because they were sending people information that was not necessarily accurate about either your ethnic background and your risk of disease. But there's a number of websites out there now in the mental health field that will actually predict whether you are at risk for depression and anxiety and bipolar illness. These are scientists at universities that are providing these kinds of information. So it's a lot more than just getting on social media. This is you're sending them information that it's not only about yourself, but it's about your family. Because once you give your DNA, you send saliva and they, they characterize your DNA, that's also your siblings and your parents. It, it's not individual information. So there has been a major uh, thrust at certainly the National Institutes of Health and many institutes across the world to start to look at these, um, these websites, to look at these companies. The, federal, uh, the FDA in the US has now started to control the testing of the, certainly the DNA. But for the treatments, we begin to think it's very important that these, these apps that are being sold to people out there should also have some empirical evidence and people should be able to look it up to determine whether there is any evidence behind it because they actually could de indeed induce harm in people. So, so it's probably worth commenting about that, Kathleen, because in Australia it depends how something is advertised. So we have, as you know, different restrictions yeah. about 
direct-to-public advertising for, uh, compared yes. with the United States for pharmaceuticals and other things. If something claims to have therapeutic benefits, then it comes under the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA in Australia. So internet-based applications, et cetera, are considered medical devices, yes. if you claim it. <laughs> so if uh, someone who's selling the thing says this has therapeutic value, they come within the law, yep. and then there has to be some degree of evidence to support that claim. Now, of course, things are available from all over the world, and if they're not promoted here for that particular purpose, they just exist, yeah. then they exist outside that regulatory environment. I think we are seeing, in a transnational way, it's great to have this discussion in the law school, we don't really have many of the international agreements in place to cover a lot of these sets of issues. Yeah. about. But we are seeing across the European Union, uh, with the FDA in the United States, and in cooperation with things like the TGA in Australia, an approach at least to some degree of standardisation and some degree of necessity that if you're going to claim therapeutic value for something, there should be some evidence in place. As part of a previous cooperative research centre I was part of here in Australia developed a mobile apps rating scale, which had two elements. One is, was there evidence of therapeutic efficacy? And actually, was it useful for the people who used it? Yeah. So developed by Queensland University of Technology and the School of Psychology, some degree of trying to take the evidence of the effectiveness plus also the utility back into real time to provide people with more information. So I do think we're seeing responses in both the academic environment and the regulatory environment to some of the challenges. But the challenges are big because mobile technology sits outside of the control of your classic jurisdiction or country-based approach to legal, regulatory-type approaches. So there are a lot of you know, transnational, international, legal, and again, social kind of agreements about where this uh, may be headed. Having said that, I think, you know, in the mental health field where the gap between the provision of the need for treatment and the provision of treatment is so large in so many countries, particularly not just in developed countries, but in middle and low income countries, the idea that we'll be able to share expertise, share access to psychological therapies, share aspects to effective assessment in a way that we are not able to do in traditional people clinic-based systems is a really interesting set of issues. So I think there is again a classic of where one perception, I must say I belong to that, the perception of opportunity is great, but the environment of which exists so that people can understand the value or the genuine worth of what they're receiving is a very challenging area. Yeah, I, I agree. So the idea of the regulation of apps is, is pretty fuzzy still now in 2017. It's no longer a new area, but it's still incredibly challenging. So if we look at things like online games or online apps and how they're designed, and there are books written on how to design apps to be as addictive as possible, and potentially, not potentially addictive in necessarily a clinical sense, but certainly it could get to that sense so that people use what's called gamification devices. So when you're playing a game, they set up structures to make it as sticky or engaging as possible. The, the key metric is how many people use it every single day. And apps have set up in many ways to encourage people to use them every single day. When you wake up in the morning, you check in. So things like having leaderboards so you can see where you are in comparison to other people. Encouraging people to have to wait. For example, if you're playing a social game and you run out of free currency, you have to then wait 24 hours. Oh, or for $5, you can purchase free currency uh, and, and go to continue on in the game. And so that you have to look at what sort of features people put into these games to make it uh, addictive for people. So if we look at something like Candy Crush, which was incredibly popular, and the height of its popularity, it was making something like $750,000 a day. 
a free play game that's absolutely free to download, but people were spending this money so they could continue to engage in it after their free credits had run out. And the apps designers can see who's spending money and they can target people. And because it's not regulated, unlike something like gambling, which is heavily regulated, they can change it and so it manipulates between the users. If they are able to detect a user that is paying a lot of money, they could theoretically make the game harder so that uh, they have to spend more money. Now, the extent to which various games are what we call predatory is difficult to know because all of that is shut up and no one's looking at what's in that box. It's all um, hidden. But there is certainly some evidence to suggest that some games are really predatory. And then even if then not, you have to think about what is the content and how appropriate it is. So we have free play gambling themed games that look exactly like a casino, simulate slot machine and poker and blackjack and they're freely accessible for any children to play and they might very well be actually owned by gambling companies who are either using that uh, information to understand their consumers, to potentially encourage people to migrate over to real money gambling sites. Uh, the algorithms in the sense are different because they can overpay its free currency. So people have this really positive experience of gambling where they're winning well over any rates they would expect in a real casino. And we know from our studies then we've actually had amongst adolescents about a third of these adolescents saying they expected that they would be more successful because of the practice they'd had in these free online games. So they're really misleading for people and setting up pathways directly into addiction and then some people are actually addicted to the games themselves. I unfortunately have spoken to individuals who've spent up to $10,000 on these games, free play games that have no payout because they misunderstand what they're about and they have these irrational beliefs and addictive um, disorders. But the, there is no regulation on that. There's no, no onus on the operator put, to put warnings on, to say this isn't a gambling game, to, to identify people and encourage them to take a break or to exclude themselves from the game. In fact, they do the opposite. They encourage people to use them as much as possible. So I think that's one area that really hasn't been looked at is how do you regulate such a wide industry um, and try and crack down on predatory app operators and features that are designed to be as addictive as possible? Okay, well, thank you very much for the comments. And there we go. I'd like to turn it over to the audience now to questions to follow up on the discussion. Uh, does anybody have any comments, questions? Gentleman in the back. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Good evening. Um, so we heard um, the term cyberbullying a couple of times, and what what I find curious: how is it that people not just opt out of it? You know, if I'm in real life, I go to school, I have to go to school, because if I don't, police come and pick me and put me back in school. Somebody spits in my face or throws sticks between my legs, I kind of get it. It's hard to get past it, but cyberbullying. I'm sitting on my computer, I'm getting emails, SMS, Facebook messages, and it's like, oh, you know, people call me names, whatever. Why not opt out, change the account, and just make sure that the people I actually add as friends are my friends? You know, what do you, how do you see that? Well, so, so what often happens is um, you can't opt out because a picture, for example, is taken of you in a compromising situation at school or otherwise elsewhere, and then it goes viral. So you may not be, you know, involved in 
the actual uh, cyberbullying part, but it's still bullying because it's been, it's gone viral, it's made public. So everybody else knows. So that's what happened with these uh, two young girls um, in, uh, uh, in Canada, is that compromising pictures were taken of them in one situation or another, that went viral, and the kids just couldn't, uh, you know, they obviously couldn't deal with it. And I think that's not an uncommon situation. Um, that, that's a really important issue to kind of pursue because, pick up my point, what is happening with most social messaging is social messaging within existing social networks. So when you say drop out of the conversation, the danger is can you really afford to drop out of the social network you're in, even when adverse things are being said about you or there are transactions going on? So it has become so much part of the social communication between young people on of the social network. To opt out is to opt out of the whole social communication. So you, there's a lot of discussion in particular, we, we see this in regards to really worrying sets of behaviours, self-harming behaviours, eating behaviours and everything else. You know, at one level, the parental kind of thing, so, you know, parent of teenagers is, you know, ignore it, you know, don't be part of it, it's okay. But it's actually not easy to drop out of the social world when this is so much intrinsically interwoven in the social world that particularly young people are in. So very challenging kind of sets of ideas about what are the right kinds of responses. And I think this is one of the issues, actually, I don't think we know the right answer yet. <laughs> you know, it sounds like drop out is the answer or whatever, and we don't know the extent of it and what actually happens. And things are happening. We've had terrible examples here in Australia, the one at a private boys' school a while ago where the sexual assault of a young woman was being shared amongst the men or young men in that particular school, unknown to the particular young woman involved, until it had been widely kind of spread amongst that particular kind of group. You know, so there are things that are happening in these worlds that are not within the constraints of many of the, you know, classical ways that we would have constrained anti-social behaviour and asocial behaviour. So I personally think we're yet to figure out <laughs> a lot of the best ways to contain or respond to some of the most adverse things that happen. Did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah. just, and again, uh, relational bullying, you, you can not worry about it because you can often find another group of friends at school to start to hang out with. So the social networks in the school environment are a lot smaller, they're a lot more contained. This is a whole new definition of what a social network looks like, which makes cyberbullying and the implications of it more long-lasting and more dangerous in the long term. Yeah, just one more comment about that. There we go. One more comment about that. At an Ivy League school in the United States, people got, um, they were able to look at the faces of all the entering freshmen and they sent racist messages around everybody who looked black. And it went to the entire freshman class. And so things like this, that's a whole different magnitude of what is a network. They, I mean, they found out who did it and so forth, and the person was prosecuted. But we don't think about when we send around the names of an entire class and their personal contact information, uh, how this can be misused. Well, and I'll just say, the, you brought up the issue about persecution. Yeah. <clears throat> the laws around cyberbullying are very ineffective. Yes. There are some states in yes. your country uh, where there's no laws against cyberbullying whatsoever. And so this really, the, you know, the issue about prosecution, I think 
we really have to come down hard and make sure that our policymakers introduce very uh, strict yes. laws. Um, I'm wondering if that really sinister incident um, that took place, I think about a year or two ago, where two um, the 12-year-olds um, attempted to murder a th their friend as a result of being instructed by an imaginary character called Slender Man. Was this a unique in instance or was there more of that? And what do you have to say about that and the dangers of that happening again? So I don't know the story um, uh, behind that. Um, that does seem to me to be an unusual uh, incident. I've not in, uh, in my career come up with something as um, you know, difficult and as uh, sinister um, as that. I'm not saying, you know, I, I, and the psychopathology behind it, that must be very complicated. Uh, I'm not really sure I can uh, understand it. I think one of the wider things uh, about this and running with gamification is, of course, younger and younger children are now uh, smart device literate, <laughs> often before they're literate in many other ways. And they're actually connecting to the world at very early ages. So, so the issue of how information comes into young people and who, who may be influencing that kind of, is another area I think is really challenging. We've seen this in the gamification area, kids in social games at very young ages joining in in particular part of their social networks, issues like uh, money but instructions and behaviours at ages where the kind of, you know, differentiation as Peter was alluding to earlier on between the real implication of what's going on and what appears to be screen-based or whatever else. So I think there are a lot of really issues about, again, we don't really know, except we see at very young ages now the extent to which very young children are taking themselves. They know how to connect, they know how to use devices, and are receiving things back from the world in a way that is no longer constrained, as it would have been in the past, by parental figures, by other authority figures, by the, by the small, no, no, small world networks as they previously operated. So I think, you know, we're going to see more examples of this in various ways, of children's behaviour being influenced at very young ages by extraneous forces in ways that we hadn't really thought about previously. Yeah, just on uh, the topic, that the age gates that we have in the real world are now eroded to the sense that, for example, if you had to actually visit somewhere that had age restriction on it, you, you had to show ID that no longer exists in the online world, you often just have to click a button to say you're 18 or someone doesn't ask at all. For the example of things like video games that have gambling elements embedded within them, people can then, uh, young people can take virtual items that have real world value and go to a gambling site with it and gamble with what's called skins, which are essentially virtual items in an online world and they can essentially do this right in front of their parents because their parents don't recognize it looking at the computer screen they would have no clue if they're even monitoring what their young people are doing on these devices so just how the world is changing for young people is really important to continue to look at um, I was going to make a comment <laughs> um, I was going to follow up with what you said before we get yeah, okay, so what I was going to comment on to follow up is I think there needs to be more parental guidance about the dangers of use in terms of young children. We don't really have guidance, and the pediatric societies have really not dealt with some of the issues with use of screen time 
except for very young children. So that would be something we could propose to society that we need some guidance for parents so that they understand the issues we raised more. Okay, thanks, go ahead. Um, uh, what just kind of worries me is the compulsive behavior, especially in young, in young people where they don't know anything different than growing up with these technologies. So the kind of, I've been talking to people about it lately, like you, the pull of checking your phone in the morning when you wake up but you don't want to be, and the sense that you're wasting your time but you can't help it. And that's how technologies are kind of addictive. And do young people even know an alternative and how to be idle in their time? And maybe what kind of interventions can we look at there? What do you think? Yeah, that's an incredibly important point, this idea of the concept of internet addiction hasn't been agreed on uh, amongst psychiatrists, so there's still this idea of it doesn't count as an addictive behaviour or not, but regardless, it obviously is highly problematic for people, this idea of checking your phone before you speak to anyone. Uh, the study that I mentioned of found 10 hours and 24 minutes as the average internet use in Australia, actually found that a quarter of people in this survey spent more time on social media than actually talking to people within their networks. So this idea of uh, when we talk about compulsive or addictive social media or smartphone use, it's uh, when it detracts from your everyday life, when you're neglecting other activities in your life, when you're having negative consequences, potentially when you want to cut down but are unable to. And, and as I mentioned, the apps are designed to cut, on, to cut back on that. So you get notifications, you get little pop-ups, you get these features within the phone that makes you uh, or encourages you as much as possible, makes it very difficult to resist uh, when you've got a buzz in your pocket or you see that little number tick over on the app of how many new messages and unread messages you had. So I think it's important to actually recognise the impact it's having on your life uh, and to think through some of the consequences. If we no longer interact in real-world time, we're no longer getting bored. In fact, this has actually been recognised as a significant problem in society. People aren't getting bored. Creativity happens when you're bored. When you look at sort of great invention stories, you don't hear anyone saying, I was scrolling through social media randomly and this fantastic idea popped into my head. It happens when our mind is allowed to wander, to be creative, to talk to someone else, to have these water cooler moments. In fact, companies are finding that their innovation is down because their employees aren't getting to meetings and bumping around ideas. They're all on their smartphones checking emails. No one's talking to one another. So recognising these problems, it's not just what you're doing online and the problems that you have online. It's what you're not doing because you're mindlessly online as just something that you're doing to occupy your time when you're waiting for someone in the bus as opposed to just looking around at the world, experiencing a positive interaction with someone, having that positive reinforcement and being able to check in. So, I mean, there is many little things you can do not having your smartphone next to your bed, turning off push notifications and logging out of your devices. So when you want to actually check social media, you make a conscious decision as opposed to just finding yourself doing it before you're even noticing. So little techniques you can do yourself as an individual can make a big difference in helping you control your, your media as opposed to your media and your devices controlling you. I want to slightly disagree <laughs> a bit, maybe a lot. Because the issue about compulsive behaviours, the idea that out of our classic kind of addiction type ideas, you keep doing something reinforced in a particular way and the decision making associated with that becomes quite aberrant compared with what is socially desirable. Okay, so you know, classically think of addiction behaviours and gambling, you're doing something despite the consequences of that which are so adverse. 
But a lot of the things we're talking about, when people are checking their devices first thing in the morning, when they're responding to various things, they're actually engaging in social behaviours. A lot of, if you look actually, a lot of what is actually going on has to do with checking messages, seeing whether other people have been in contact. It's strongly reinforced, in fact, within those social networks. And your availability is strongly reinforced. The expectation that you will be available and you'll be in contact and someone you care about has sent you a message and then you respond. So the checking behaviours and things that are going on, I don't think they are quite like what we've traditionally understood as compulsive and addictive behaviours. They're strongly reinforced, in fact, by the social networks we exist within, you know. And Kathleen contacts me from the other side of the world and whatever, and some goddamn time, whatever she thinks it is, and is over here. You know, there's an expectation in real time in the same day I'll be back in contact with her in a way that did not exist in other particular ways. If I'm part of things and I have parental responsibilities and child responsibilities and work responsibilities and things going on in a wider world, we are part of wider social networks in which there's an expectation, in fact, that we respond. And we want to be part of those. We're social animals. We're in that. So I think one of the really interesting things is these things play into something that's very human, but then engage us in a way that is continuous, in a way that was not possible prior, not just locally, but in fact worldwide. We become a worldwide social network. So I think the nature of the continuous connection is being reinforced by a set of social behaviours which is a bit different. Hence, I don't think there is an agreement quite about what is addiction. <laughs> There's the gamification bit on your own, but if really you're in contact with a whole lot of other people all the time, I don't know what you think so, but that's kind of different to a lot of the other traditional notions of addiction and gambling, where the antisocial element, the poor decision-making kind of element, sort of stands out. I mean, do you have a view about this? Because I think it is actually different, but challenging. It, it is different, and that's why it hasn't been agreed on, actually. It's been studied, this idea of internet addiction and gaming addiction, and we don't have an agreement because... Well, in one aspect, because it's still evolving. You know, what does internet addiction mean when you look at it in 2007 compared to 2017? And it's also what you do online. So you can have incredibly enriching relationships online, but you can also just be mindlessly scrolling through Pinterest for 45 minutes um, and be missing out on the real world around you. So I think it's all about choice, making the active choice to do it, thinking about what else you're doing. You know, when you're on social media, you're not walking around. You've got huge issues with sedentary behaviour and, and fitness. And, and what are you doing unless you've got your fit bit on while you're having your internet-connected devices? So there's just so many different ways you can do things. But to think about making that active choice, and if you decide I want to spend half an hour on Twitter and stay in touch and get my updates, compared to just unconsciously doing it and it's about people's own reactions if people are finding themselves which we do actually know from research people are getting off Facebook and actually feeling more depressed about their lives because someone's just checked into Fiji and someone else has posted a photo online without mentioning oh it took me 45 minutes of filters to get this photo to look that perfect so this kind of idea that what we're seeing online is a distorted reality and we're not always very good and we're also super critical of each other so this idea of online regret because people put photos up without thinking about it, and other people jump all over them and feel perfectly happy. We know online there's this sense of disinhibition and uh, makes people more uh, aggressive in their interactions. So there's a lot you can do that's really positive online. There's a lot of really things that can end up in negative situations, but we have a lot more control over it. And it's just about 
trying to look at the design elements, what should be allowed by regulation, teaching people in schools you know, how to have appropriate conversations. But um, at the end of the day, in the absence of any regulation, essentially, it's going to come down to the individual consumer to work out how to have their own relationship with social media, with their devices, um, set their own boundaries in place. If they're having really positive interactions, terrific. That doesn't sound like an addiction. But some people really do find it difficult to control it and they feel negative and um, you know, depressed after checking in with social media. And that's when we need to start looking at the behaviour and there's some steps you can put in place to try and maximise the positive interactions and, and minimise those negative interactions. Um, as we all know, the internet is quite filled with uh, many hateful comments, many uh, aggressive sort of uh, interactions. It only takes a brief scroll through YouTube comments to recognize that. Um, I want to see whether that is a reflection of um, <clears throat> a flawed social uh, interaction model or whether it's something um, innate within the human nature to act like that, um, that social media simply allows it for uh, uh, sort of uh, makes it easier for it to happen. Thank you. Um, it's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting question. I was thinking about the difference between letters to the editor and comments posted online. Uh, you know, letters to the editor are some of the most uh, sensible, thoughtful uh, comments about daily news. Uh, comments posted online about a story are really dreadful uh, to read. Uh, and it does show a side of human nature that's ugly, quite frankly. So what's the difference between, you know, posting online and writing a letter to the editor? What is it that constrains you in one situation and doesn't constrain you um, in the other? It must be impulsivity. It must be, um, you know, doing without thinking. It must be metacognitive in that way. And if we, if we let those metacognitive abilities, that is our ability to think about what we're thinking, uh, uh, if we lose that, then, you know, uh, we can communicate uh, dreadful and ugly things. I think that seems to me to be uh, uh, an important uh, feature. So I think we, we are dealing with the difference between in, in normal social interaction, the response of the other in real time, the social constraints that operate, which have traditionally moderated behaviour and commentary in direct social situations, aren't there. So there's a whole lot of things about the online environment. I mean, people say all sorts of things and reveal much more in the online environment. We're asking people about their sexuality, their suicidality, all sorts of things. People say things to computers all the time even though they know someone's on the other end, not constrained by worrying about the response of the other. So in a sense, what you might call disinhibited or impulsive. But in reality, people let stuff out in a good way and a bad way in this environment that is apparently kind of anonymous, or it's anonymous to the immediate impact or response of the other. And clearly humans, in most of their behaviour, are strongly influenced by the response of others in those particular situations. So we're in a, I think the truth is, we're in a new social kind of environment. Humans are playing out themselves within a new set of things, not constrained by many of the things that constrain social behaviour for us as social animals in a particular kind of way. I'm, I'm a little less down on it than Peter is 
kind of way. I think it's going to depend at how this kind of develops. So in some interesting interactions I was involved in myself with both Twitter and with Facebook some years ago in California, in the United States. In the United States setting, the strong anti-regulation type environment runs. In the strong American ethic is regulate nothing. <laughs> right? yeah. Just let it happen. Yeah. It'll interfere with the business models, you know, whatever else. In the, uh, our kind of world, which people quite rightly identifies as the Anglosphere and the European kind of world, colonies. we cut the colonies. We love the idea of regulating things, <laughs> as if we could. You know, so I think we have strongly different cultural kind of things being played out here. Personally, I think it's going to get played out in social networks. How do people actually respond? What is the opportunity? There's a lot of discussion of this. Twitter's probably the best example at the moment. You know, how's it actually going to play out? There's a lot that's incredibly destructive. But there's a lot of stuff where people are actually in contact with each other in different kinds of ways. Probably Facebook is the best example of the pro-social. You know, Facebook's main target audience at the moment is middle-aged women who run the world's social networks anyway, through families. And they want them to use Facebook as the principal tool so that my family can be in contact with my nieces and nephews and their relatives on the other side of the world. They're posting photos of their new babies and children. And then we're all part of a pro-social thing that's no longer constrained. Now, within that, the commentary and whatever is incredibly pro-social. It's not negative. You know? So there's a kind of issue about how, I think, social networks develop in association with these tools. At the moment, there's the Wild West element being brought to us from the United States. Don't regulate it, don't touch it, just let it be. <laughs> on the other side, I think you're seeing in other, in other, the rest of the developed world in particular, kind of, hang on a second, this seems a little not to be, quite, not to be right. You know, we seem to be bringing it to allowing the worst of ourselves not to be influenced by social kind of dimensions. I don't think the response will be regulatory. You know, I don't think these things lend themselves really, there'll be some degree of regulation, but that really, this technology just skips around regulation in the majority. The issue is going to be, what are the response of humans and groups? You know, that Facebook thrives on sociability. Twitter has thrived on this. You can do anything. You know, what lives and dies in these environments, I think it's going to be determined by the response of humans to those environments. But it's a very open kind of question at the moment. So I think they are tools that humans are using that bring out different aspects of humans' own social behaviour. This is a very interesting thread because it makes me uh, think about the importance of the difference between sociability and empathy. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, it's hard to be empathic if there isn't somebody there on the other side. On the other side. And empathy is, is something that does constrain you and inhibit you. Uh, you can be very social. so but not be empathic at all. Certain presidents of certain countries. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. None of the colonies. Anyway, um, uh, somebody ought to do a discourse analysis of text on the internet uh, and then compare that with discourse analysis of face-to-face -face interaction, measuring the frequency of empathy and empathic comments. That mm -hmm. would be an interesting uh, exercise. And it's also the sense of anonymity that when you're speaking to someone face to face, you're you know recognisable. They usually know who you are, but online, they say you know anyone can be a dog online. That 
you don't know who you are. And the, the idea, particularly with letters to the editor or newsletter comments, people just post these an anonymous statements or under a username. And even when some newspapers, I think the actual Toronto newspaper has changed the comment section, do you have to actually log in and register now and attempt to try and get over these horrible comments? And they found people are still making horrible comments because <laughs> the reality is if you're John Smith from Toronto, that doesn't actually identify you to anyone, really. So this idea of, and the I've just been reading a lot about behavioural economics and I've read the book uh, Hooked, which is all about design principles and addictive design. And the, the statement that sort of stuck with me is we don't yet have the social antibodies to the internet use. So we haven't yet learned as a society. And the fact that it's changing, Facebook today is different from Facebook 10 years ago. So as a society, we haven't yet come up with the etiquette and the appropriate things yeah. to do and say yeah. online and how to interact with people. And we just don't have that as a culture yet. Hi, so I'd like to ask you about a very simple question so about whether to allow children to using phone or not. I mean, I, know the, I, mean, I was uh, one of the, those who really seriously addicted to game or playing game or something. Also, my father, he was addicted to gambling for a long time. Of course, he, over, he has overcome, also I did as well. I'm fine, so I don't play game anymore. But sometimes, so yes, also I guess that I heard that my grandfather he was also addicted to alcohol or something. So whenever I think about my history of my father and my grandfather, I cannot stop thinking about some probably in the future after I get married, or if I can get married in the future and having some have some children. And probably I think that I should not allow my children to use smartphone until they grow up or until they become at least 15 or 16 years old. So I just, I'd like to hear about your opinions. Thank you. Yeah, I'll take some of it. Uh, um, well, there certainly are guidelines about um, allowing kids to use the internet and certainly the younger they are, the less they should be uh, using it. Um, uh, uh, but in, we have data that's showing that there are kids uh, under 18 months of age, 18 months of age, who are using a lot of screen time. And that uh, is often occurs in very vulnerable families. And parents are using screen time as a soother right, uh, as a way of pacifying kids. And it's the vulnerability. We need to pay attention to the vulnerability of the children or the vulnerability in that family less than we need to pay attention, I think, to repetitive, addictive behavior. Uh, that maybe is one way where internet addiction is similar to uh, other substances in addictive behavior because it's a distraction from a vulnerability of one of one sort uh, or another. But I, I know that you've got interesting data about the difference between the one and the other. Yeah, so we, um, this is an evolving world and I think you're really common and also the use of technology is changing. So, you know, where we've looked at that in teenagers you know, we don't really see that phenomena of an overlap and that sort of transgenerational addiction. Having said that, I think what Peter just alluded to is fascinating. 
You know, we're seeing so-called pre-literate kids who are able to actually access the technology, get around the password, get onto whatever else, you know, in ways that you just wouldn't predict from traditional learning type kind of environments. And then the use and the response to that is so dramatically different from technologies that we've had in the past. So I think the concern about very young children disappearing into those before they've developed other mm -hmm. cognitive abilities and the ability to regulate that kind of behaviour. So I think the this has led to, I think, um, recommendations about screen time and other things from uh, paediatrics and other areas, just, just on a sort of first principles basis, you know, that this kind of uh, exposure and, 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 and a difference to previous things like TVs and whatever where, in fact, very young children can actually manipulate the devices at a very early age, way beyond what we would have predicted from prior kind of ideas of learning and cognitive studies. I mean, just in general, uh, under six, no. Over six, yes, but in a structured way. So parents need to say, okay, you've got half an hour, an hour, go for it, but then you've got to, got to do other things like read a book together, go for a walk mm -hmm. together, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as it's parents take uh, the approach that they've got to structure it, then uh, I think it's uh, probably safe. Yeah, because it would be a big mistake to come up with some rule. You, my child can never use the internet because I had a grandparent with alcoholism. Now I've studied the familial transmission of substance use and, and so forth, and we don't see that you have cross-addiction in families um, for particularly substances. And we're n it's not very clear with gambling and other, in terms of the propensity to develop these things. So we have to look at the individual. If an individual has a propensity to develop any of the problems that you're raising, I think you'll be, you can become aware of it, and you have to do it on an individual basis. Uh, so denying somebody access to something that could be very valuable and useful for them uh, I just don't think hard and fast rules are ever going to be very fruitful. One last question. I think your distinction of um, empathy versus sociability is very important. If you are dealing with a person, you have other cues. You have the, the sound of the voice, you have the face. I'm aware of a young man, no longer with us unfortunately, who at 11 o'clock, after 11 o'clock, two, two, sorry, two o'clock in the morning, sent out messages that he felt terrible, had responses from all his friends. The next day he committed suicide. So there's no substitute for face-to-face -face interaction because you, you lose the cues and the, you lose the cues and I think the other thing quite often you lose the sense of what's important and what isn't important. You know, I've got a sore toe, oh, isn't that terrible? I feel terrible, isn't, you know, I feel really bad, isn't that terrible? So the distinction of, 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 the, um, of the gravity of the situation is lost. Can I just say in terms of anecdotes, I think it is important to say I could quote half a dozen anecdotes with the, the exact opposite outcome. And I think it's really interesting in the so-called peer world of mental health where people have reached out at two in the morning in desperate situations and the persons they've got connection from in their social world and people who shared the same experience probably has prevented the outcome that you described. So I think this is one of these really difficult worlds that we're in 
about what may or may not happen. And the, and the issue of, I think, Peter's alluded to the heart of the matter, of genuine connection. You know, the, the empathy underpins the genuineness of the connection, and that may play a critical role, not just only in enriching our lives in general, but preventing some of the terrible consequences of social disconnection, including suicidal behaviour. But it is my responsibility to draw the thing to a close. I'm very grateful to the organisers of Sydney Ideas for the opportunity to have this kind of wider discussion about something that is really happening. We had this discussion beforehand, Kathleen, Peter and I and Lou Sally. There's a whole lot of stuff we really don't know, but it is happening in real time. And I'm very grateful to the Sydney Ideas people for the opportunity for discussing in real time. Just to remind you, as part of the ongoing commitment of the University of Sydney in the mental health area, there is another Sydney Ideas event on Thursday, the 26th of October, and it does deal with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health, a really key issue for our countries. It's been in other countries like Canada where First Nations mental health has been a really serious issue and a big challenge in our particular environment. And that will be on Thursday, the 26th of October, between 6 and 7.30pm in the McLaren Hall here at the University of Sydney. But thank you very much for your participation this evening and particularly grateful to our two international guests. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.